I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. There's traffic roaring up and down, and on this very wide street, on one side, the north side, there's stall after stall of market traders and lots of shops spilling out over the wide pavement, and it's teeming with people doing their shopping ready for the week and the weekend. On a chilly, overcast day this February, Guy Barter, RHS Chief Horticulturist and co-presenter of the podcast, went to Whitechapel Market in East London to explore the wide array of fruits and vegetables we can find here in the UK that are from abroad. Out here in front of the shop, it's spilling out onto the pavements and there's lots of guavas and green pumpkins and lychees and mangoes. And on the other side of the vegetables, lots and lots of spinach, lots of coriander, Thai basil. And in the far corner are the daikon roots and then more roots behind them with some edo yams, lots of garlic, lots of capsicums, so chilli peppers. There's lots of them. They're looking fantastic. With our mild climate and handy resources like greenhouses and polytunnels, we can grow an amazing variety of plants throughout this country. Think of palm trees, those tropical wonders that now line the front gardens of many London streets. Welsh onions are very easy to grow. Spinach is easy to grow. There's also lots of cauliflowers and potatoes, but we know all about them. Some of the beans are sold dried as well as fresh, so you can buy the dried beans and sow them or you can take some of the fresh beans and let them ripen in the kitchen somewhere warm and dry and sow those. The gourds and pumpkins and the bitter melons, they're grown just the same as our ones are grown. They should crop in good time in the summer. As Britain becomes more and more diverse, the flora that we grow is changing and we want to honour that. So this week we're spotlighting the plants grown here from elsewhere. First up, we'll take a trip to an allotment site in Southall. Here, award-winning garden designer Manoj Malde will chat with us about the fruit and veg from around the world that he's including in his Chelsea garden. We're then delving into the history of plant collectors. Fiona Davison, head of libraries and exhibitions at the RHS, will take us through the often overlooked legacy of how some of our favourite flora made it to Britain. And finally, we head to RHS Bridgewater's Chinese Streamside Garden and explore how international horticultural partnerships have changed over the years. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. Manoj Maude, RHS Ambassador for Diversity and Inclusivity, started gardening when he was, in his words, a wee lad. As with most kids, his first foray into growing began with veg. He helped his eldest brother create a vegetable plot at the bottom of his family's garden one summer. 
From there, his parents tasked him with taking care of the houseplants growing on their porch. He grew things like African violets and jasmine, drawn to their bright colours and alluring smells. Now, as a garden designer, Manoj has continued to plant what inspires him, vibrant and multicoloured flora that delight the senses. This year, he's designing the RHS and Eastern Eye Garden of Unity for the Chelsea Flower Show. The garden, which has a colour palette of oranges and pinks, inspired by his Indian heritage, will feature vegetables from around the world. To get inspired about exactly what to grow, Manoj took a trip recently to an allotment site in Southall. There he chatted with Chief Horticulturist Guy Barter. Today we're in my natural environment, which is an allotment site. And as is often the case in the spring, it's pouring with rain and we're standing under a dripping canopy, gazing out at lovely crops of onions, apple trees in flower, plum trees in flower. And with me today is Manoj Malde, who is a noted garden designer and is working on the RHS and Eastern Eye Garden of Unity at Chelsea Flower Show 2023. So I have the honour of actually creating this amazing garden and it has been an absolute joy. The design process has obviously happened already. We're around the corner from building the garden at Chelsea. But what I really, really want to do is today get some inspiration behind the fruit and veg that these communities use in their kitchens. So the communities that I'm looking at are obviously the Gujarati community, the Pakistani community, the Punjabi community. From my background, I was born in Kenya, so I'm looking at the African and Afro-Caribbean communities, the Far Eastern communities in Asia, so China, Vietnam, Singapore, you know, really we're all kind of using those lovely, unusual fruits and veg in our cuisine. And so I want to bring all of that in. I'm also including the LGBT community, you know, the less able body we all garden in one form or another we all garden gardening is for everyone and so therefore I want to make sure that everyone is able to actually get some outside space and start planting in my house the activity is always around the kitchen. Nobody ever steps into the lounge or the dining area. Everyone comes straight into the kitchen. And actually, food is something that brings communities together. So this is the reason why I actually wanted to include fruit and veg within my garden as well, because they're reminders of home. And how do we connect with these other communities? It's through the different cultural aspects and part of that is actually growing different types of food that is unusual for the UK but actually can still be grown here. Well food and cooking and eating of course are very evocative and always part of people's backgrounds. Do you have any childhood memories of what foods you ate and any vegetables that your family grew? Oh my gosh yes absolutely well I mean coriander, chilies and fenugreek. Which Indian kitchen doesn't use that? So I've grown things like peas, which I, I love growing. There's nothing like actually picking fresh peas and cooking them up. 
The one thing that I really am going to try this year is growing. There's a radish that we grow, but it's the legumes of the radish that we actually cook up and eat. We call it mungri, purple rat's tails, they're known commonly as. So yes, I'm going to try growing those. And of course, things like tomatoes as well, you know, because we create the gravy of our curries with tomatoes. In fact, I'm growing three different types of tomatoes this year, so they will also be used in the kitchen. Well, I think the first thing people will ask is, how can we grow vegetables that really require the heat of the Indian subcontinent. How can we grow them here in dull, wet, cold Southall today? Well, some of these things, of course, would need to be grown indoors. My sister's mother-in-law actually grows curry leaves quite successfully. She grows them indoors in a pot and she's had great success and she's able to pick the fresh curry leaves and use it in her curry, so that is possible. Certainly things like fenugreek and coriander can be grown outdoors very, very easily. But if you don't have an outdoor space, you know, if you have a windowsill, it's quite easy to grow a little bit of coriander or fenugreek in a pot. And then the more unusual things, like, say, bitter gourd, and there are other gourds that we use in our cooking, those can also be grown. Maybe you would need a greenhouse or an indoor space, but certainly there are communities within the UK, Indian communities, Punjabi communities, Sikh communities, Pakistani communities, who are actually growing these things quite successfully. There are on this allotment here various greenhouses and lots of polytunnels that give you that little bit of extra heat you need. But the rat's tail radish, if I may call it that, which is actually, as I know for myself, is a very delicious vegetable, it's the seed pods that we eat of those, isn't it? It, it is. You're absolutely right, Guy. It's the legumes that grow on top that we actually pick and eat. And that can be easily grown in the ground. And again, if you don't have ground space, grow it in some pots, but it will grow very easily in this country. I always like letting my radishes go to seed and then I often nibble these seed pods on the allotment just as a snack while I'm working. And the advantage, of course, is that the flowers of brassicas like radish have much loved by pollinators, so you're helping wildlife and your palate. You can buy seeds of many crops that are favoured in the subcontinent, but you can also buy produce and plant it, and things like taro, for example, you can buy the roots and pop them in the ground. Yes, so actually it is grown like a potato, so what you do is you literally put the root in the ground and just keep the growing tip slightly above ground because what you don't want it to do is get very damp because it'll start rotting. So keep that slightly above ground but put the major part of the body of the root underground and, and it'll just start growing and shooting leaves and then what you'll find is that steadily it'll start actually creating more new plant shoots and additional roots and it'll just start expanding. So the root itself will also get bigger and bigger. Mm. Funny enough, when we were in, in Kenya... I remember my aunt growing taro and actually, in fact, it used to grow quite naturally. It used to grow on the banks where the sewage water would run and they, they would get fertilised, obviously, by the sewage and it would just grow naturally there and banks and banks of it. Mm. Well, I definitely cooked that before I ate. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're really privileged in the UK because we live in such a multicultural society here. There are so many people from all different cultures and traditions and different walks of life. And I think 
As time has gone on, we have benefited from actually experiencing different cuisines. We, I mean, look at the amount of restaurants we have in the UK. And I think, in a way, what's happened is over the years, our taste buds have been spoilt in some respects because we've got used to experiencing foods from all over the world. And so now people are interested in actually growing some of that food as well because they're starting to use it in their kitchens. I remember when I came here as a very wee lad, I was six years old and you couldn't find coriander in the supermarkets, but now you walk into Waitrose or Tesco's or Sainsbury's and they're selling coriander. But that's really lovely because, you know, it, in a way that shows that people are looking towards experiencing other cultures, be it through food or otherwise. And I think, you know, certainly for me, creating this garden at Chelsea, it is all about that. It is all about bringing the riches of these different communities together. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing the finished garden. It's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Manoj Maude and Guy Barter. I've grown a few of the things that they've talked about. So coriander, and you can sow seed now. If you want to grow your own coriander seed and have something really, really fresh, you can also eat them. This is something I learned from an Indian friend of mine. You can eat the seeds as they are unripe, as a green seed. Or you can sow it in September and it's a brilliant crop to grow in a greenhouse over the winter. Chilies, brilliant, brilliant time of year now to plant chilies. You can buy plants of lots of different varieties in garden centres, pop them in your greenhouse. Some of them will grow outside, but really, if you want to get the best out of your chilies, grow them in a greenhouse or a polytunnel or even under a big cloche because they really appreciate the heat. Fenugreek is a funny one. I've grown this on the allotment a few times and it grows amazingly well. It loves warm, dry conditions and you can eat it as a vegetable like methi. But sometimes gardeners grow it as a green manure as a crop to enrich the soil. So it's a leguminous plant and it can pull down nitrogen from the air and enrich your soil. So if you grow too much to eat, dig it into the soil and it's kind of a win-win situation. As Manoj mentioned, his garden at Chelsea is all about inclusivity, bringing the riches of different cultures and communities together. And of course, one of the ways he's doing this is by incorporating plants from different regions around the globe. Now, growing things here from elsewhere has a really long history. So many of the staples of a quote-unquote English garden are actually not from this part of the world at all. Think of rhododendrons, wisteria, delphiniums. And this history of introductions, often in the form of plant collecting, is quite a complicated topic for a number of reasons. But here to demystify this history and helping write a record that's been misleading for so long is Fiona Davison, Head of Libraries and Exhibitions at the RHS. So the thing about what we call an English or British garden is it's international, it's global. I mean, repeat flowering roses. What could be more English than that? There were obviously wild roses in Western Europe and Britain, but the idea of hybrid teas and repeat flowering, that comes from China and the Far East. There's hardly any kind of area of the garden that isn't global. Our gardens are this legacy of trade, commerce, exploitation, politics, you know, you name it. There's a lot of drama underneath, you know, how our gardens got to be as rich and diverse as they are. 
So plant collecting is the process by which people find wild species, collect samples, collect seeds, press samples to make herbarium specimens, bring back seeds or roots or even sometimes whole plants to then grow them on, propagate and begin the journey of turning a wild species into a cultivar, a garden plant. So people have been collecting plants on their travels forever. There are all sorts of tales and accounts of people bringing plants with them, particularly the Romans, a lot of plants that are now deemed native to Britain, a lot of people think can trace back to the Romans. Wherever people travel, they bring the plants they want to grow and eat with them. So plant collecting is pretty much nearly as old as people have been growing plants deliberately. As people started to take on a more kind of scientific approach to studying plants and botany, that coincided with more and more exploration of the world. And in Britain's case, it particularly coincided with the growth of the British Empire. And it's a part of plant collecting that hasn't really been explored that much, just how interdependent, how entwined British scientific and commercial plant collecting was with you know, British imperial expansion. And it's almost as if in traditional accounts and traditional histories of plant collecting, that plant collecting is this thing that's divorced from the rest of the world. It's got nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with economics or culture or anything. And in fact, that's obviously not true. It's completely an activity that's influenced by the world around it. So you'll find a lot of plant collectors either went out on British naval ships or trading commercial ships. They relied on colonial networks and infrastructure when they got out there, you know, soldiers, troops, or just contacts. And, you know, they were looking for plants very often, like the banana or tea, commercial crops that they could find in one part of the world and take to another and exploit, you know, hugely economically. So there are lots of famous plant collectors and, you know, their names within kind of garden history circles are well known. And I think that one of the interesting things about them, people like Ernest Wilson or George Forrest or Frank Kingdom Ward, these are all collectors who collected in the early 20th century in China, for example. They're often depicted as lone explorers on their own collecting. And actually, what's really interesting is they weren't. They weren't. They were collecting with large teams of local people. But because the mindset at the time was kind of describing the during do of these lone explorers, they didn't credit or it wasn't acknowledged in the official record that actually this was a very collaborative team effort that relied on a huge amount of local knowledge and labour to bring these plants back. And very often, in fact, some of these plant collecting expeditions were actually shopping expeditions. They'd go to local gardens and local markets and buy the seeds and the you know the fruits and whatever because the local people had been growing them for centuries and intimately you know knowledgeable about how to grow these plants. And the plant collectors come in and say, I explored and I you know bring back this prized guava or whatever. And they've just been shopping. <laughs> And it's easy to kind of laugh at that in a way, but there's a serious side to that, is that that means that Western scientific record is missing out on a lot of knowledge for a start off because it just wasn't thought important. But also we aren't given the full picture. Taking, for example, George Forrest, he brought tens of thousands of plants back during the time that he was collecting in the Himalayas and Nepal. 
But actually, that was the work of teams of local Nahi, the local ethnic group, collectors led by a man called Zhao Chengzang. And he's not credited at all in the formal record. George Forrest named plants after the people who sponsored the expeditions, even some of the local customs officials who stamped the parcels that they were sent, but none after the, the local collectors who actually did the collecting. Sometimes Forrest wasn't even in the country when these expeditions were taking place. He just sent out teams of local collectors with kind of instructions to bring interesting plants back. But the formal botanical record, it's a you know, a George Forest collected plant. And it wasn't until 2020 when the Missouri Botanic Gardens decided to name a new Barbary in honour of Xiao Chengzhang, Berberish Zhao, that he's got credit. So it's really serious that we, you know, think about and credit and also conduct plant collecting differently today. Values have changed, attitudes have changed, and it's not enough just to take the written record that was written from a very particular point of view on face value. For one thing, some of these plant collectors, certainly in the early 20th century, they had to raise money to pay for the expedition so they'd get sponsors to sponsor an expedition and to convince people to sponsor an expedition they'd write almost an adventure story, a, you know, a book about their last expedition to drum up support. So it was in their interest to kind of, you know, really exaggerate or really emphasise their daring and this idea that they're going into a wilderness, that idea that the places they were going to were terra nova, you know, undiscovered, but they were populated. They were actually populated with people who had, as I say, an intimate knowledge built on generations of growing and living with these plants. So it's important that we acknowledge those changing attitudes to get a fuller picture and get a more accurate picture of people's relationship with plants and that kind of web of interdependencies that we've all got with the growing world around us. Thanks, Fiona. Since the 19th and early 20th centuries, plant collecting's changed a lot. Today, international teams work closely together with local experts to study plants in their native habitats, and there's legislation in place to help ensure that the intellectual property of the research they produce is shared among all parties involved. There's still a way to go to ensure that it's all equitable, but progress is being made. Another reflection of changing attitudes can be seen in the way we grow international plants in our gardens at the RHS. We want to show off cultivation styles and practices from around the world because we believe that this makes for richer, more interesting plots. But of course, we want to do this as respectfully, carefully and authentically as possible. So for our final story of the day, we're heading to RHS Garden Bridgewater to check in on the Chinese Streamside Garden. Here's interpretation coordinator Daniel Atherton and community leader Jerry Young to take it away. So we're about two-thirds of the way up the Chinese Streamside Garden at RHS Garden Bridgewater. Um, we're overlooking the dual borders or the Langan borders, looking northeast towards the classical Chinese water garden and the former historic site of Worsley New Hall. It's looking beautiful, so we're just in early May and everything's just starting to come into flower and grow some shoulders. And obviously, hopefully, you can just hear the gentle sound of the water coming down the stream side. I believe that this is the largest Chinese garden project, if not the first ever Chinese garden project in UK. 
And the uniqueness of it is the fact that this is a collaboration between Irish Rose Garden Bridgewater and China Flower Association, which is the equivalent of RHS in China. So one of the things that's um, really nice in this garden is the inclusion of things like the rhododendron, white egret, and some of the primula species, which we can sort of link back with direct lineage to the plant collectors who would have been finding these plants in places like Sichuan province and Yunnan province in China the late 19th century through to the early 20th century. So these plants came back, were collected with the help of indigenous knowledge, collected by various plant collectors and brought back to the RHS to reside in the RHS's plant collection. But then over the following century, you know, various hybridization has taken place and these plants have now sort of returned, if you like, to a Chinese setting within the Chinese Dreamside Garden. Okay, so if we uh, keep walking up the path here, we can go and have a look at the water garden, which has some really nice Chinese features. What I also learned in this journey is that to call a garden a Chinese garden, you have to have four elements. One, you would have to have the water. Two is the rock. Three are the plants and garden architectures. So this Chinese water garden was designed by Mr. Fan Xuan of the Yangzhou Classical Garden Construction Company and was a really meticulous piece of work from the RHS team here to try and reflect really classical Chinese water garden design. You can see other examples of Chinese gardens in the UK, but you'd always really need to put those in inverted commas a lot of the time because they don't have the same meticulous approach that we've taken here really to reflect the sort of the standards of Chinese garden design. So if we come around to this position in particular and you look at the landscape at the back of the garden, the rock placement there is really, really classical with the, the highest point of the garden at the back being stone is really, really key. Similar in form to classical Chinese landscapes like Huangshan, the Yellow Mountain near Shanghai. When you travel to places like that, you see the mountains in a very much in a similar form. So large amounts of rockscape with small, perfectly formed trees. Chinese streamside garden will eventually be, as the garden grows, I think will be right in the center of it. And I think that you will see a classic Chinese garden with many horticultural aspects, you know, the trees and plants and so on, that came from China. You can see a, a sort of cosmosm of this Chinese garden, traditional Chinese garden with the original Chinese trees and shrubs within a English woodland and harmonizing with it. And I think that's amazing. I think the main thing that I really like about this garden is the water. Actually, it's really nice to always be present to the water within the spaces. This garden is always changing and moving and the water itself kind of reflects that. So now we've left the Chinese Dreamside Garden and we've come inside to discuss this really nice exhibition that we've created in relation to the Dreamside Garden called Rare and Familiar Friends, which is the story of Chinese plants in our gardens. Apparently, there are some 32,000 plant species which originated from China. 
and that accounts for about one-eighth of all the total plant species found in the world. And so if you look at UK, for example, I mean, if you think about our most common garden flowers, shrubs, magnolia, chrysanthemum, camellias, rhododendron, jasmine, peonies, crab apple trees, winter sweets, there's a whole host of standard everyday garden flowers that you find which originated from China. Even the rose, the modern rose, is often a cross between the native rose in Britain, in England, and the Chinese rose. And there are also trees, I mean, jinko trees, dawn redwood, there's a huge number of trees also are found in China, which has now been transplanted all over the world. Really what we wanted to do with this exhibition is to sort of consider how those plants were discovered. Often the story has been of, you know, the white European man traveling out to colonial or obscure destinations and coming back with these great discoveries. But actually what we wanted to do with this exhibition was talk a little bit more about the indigenous population and the importance of collaboration and indigenous knowledge and understanding. Because, we, you know, without this indigenous knowledge and help, the plant collectors simply wouldn't have had the success rate that they did. I think one of the main things I've taken away from this research is how the Chinese Dreamside Garden project is reflecting some of those, those early endeavors and being really honest in the way that it's being constructed and designed. We needed to work with Chinese people and Chinese specialists, whether they were from the China Flower Association or specific garden designers in order to make sure that the, the Chinese garden that we created truly reflected Chinese garden design. Not trying to, you know, to take complete ownership of the designs for Archer's Garden Bridgewater, but reflect, you know, the multicultural society that Manchester is and also just reflect the international nature of horticulture. Thanks, Ed, Daniel and Jerry. I think it's important to look back at the history of garden plants because quite often plants' history mirrors human history and often there are stories that repay closer examination and narratives to unpick. I mean, something that I've come across in my work is occasionally we talk about plants being discovered. You know, was that lily discovered in China on, in 1903 or was it first brought to Western eyes in 1903, was there a culture that had been aware of that lily for thousands of years beforehand and knew it very well? And perhaps it was just the first time that a white person had seen it. So I think the language around plant hunting, the language of gardening is, is changing and evolving and it needs to update itself. And I think it's time we look back with more compassion and respect for other cultures. We'll discover new stories. Sometimes it'll be uncomfortable, but it'll always be interesting. But back to the present, what can you do in your garden this week? Well, now is the time as the risk of frost is receding across most of the country. It's a brilliant time to get sowing your tender veg. I've been hedging my bets. Last weekend, I sowed lots of sweet corn and dwarf French beans and runner beans. I sowed them in the greenhouse because I was feeling a bit nervous. But in the coming weeks, you can sow all of those things outside. It's also a good time to deadhead your bulbs. So if you've got daffodils and tulips and things like that, snap off the old faded flower heads and that way they'll put their energy into making more flowers for next year rather than seeds. And it's also a time where if things have maybe died over the winter or you're tipping out pots of things, 
Maybe think about recycling compost. We've talked about this on the show before, but you can reuse or put in compost. Make sure you add a bit of slow-release fertilizer. Look out for any pests and diseases. Maybe mix in a bit of finely chipped bark and perhaps even mix in some fresh stuff. But don't think that just because compost has been used once, you have to throw it away. Make use of it. It's a precious resource. And so let's make the most of what we have. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.